Welcome to another episode of The Breakdown. We've seen the UCP take some victory laps lately. Uh, we saw Daniel Smith in the legislature. Healthcare, it's going better than could be possibly imagined. It's going fantastic. Healthcare solved. Uh, we've seen Daniel Smith talk about the fact that in Indigenous issues, uh, you know, the First Nations Indigenous folks have extricated themselves from the patriarchy of the Indian Act, apparently. Uh, I don't think they know that. I don't think... They're aware, maybe because it hasn't happened. Um, but now they're turning their attention to social issues. There are some people who have some concerns with UCP's and Daniel Smith's approach to dealing with social issues. Social issues, for example, we're talking about things like uh, drug addiction, mental health, and the question and problem of homelessness, or as we're going to, I'm at least I'm going to refer to it during the show, houselessness. And the reason why I'm going to be, just for anybody who's wondering why isn't it using that strange word, um, there are a lot of people who argue that using the term homelessness implies that the, the people who are experiencing that don't have a home. But when speaking to houseless people, one of the things that you'll find is that they very much do feel like they have a home. They just don't have a place to be warm and store their stuff consistently. So it's in conversation with a couple of outreach groups, they've said, Nate, you got to say houselessness. I'm going to do my very best to respect that. But to get a let's go with non-scripted talking points evaluation of the UCP's new endeavor, we're very grateful today to be joined by Ewan Thompson. Uh, Ewan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Nate. So before we get too far into the, the question of what are the UCP doing and why are they doing that and why is it good or bad, who is Ewan Thompson? So I'm, uh, I'm the director or executive director, I guess, at each and every businesses for harm reduction. I also run a business here in Calgary, uh, Treaty 7 land. And, and I see a lot of the work that I'm doing within the drug policy realm as, as really part and parcel with, with my um, partnership at, you know, within Treaty 7. I think uh, we, have, we have a lot of work to do to try and dismantle some of these structures of oppression. Um, and, and drug prohibition has been one of the most potent tools really wielded by the state um, you know, at all levels of government to uh, to really uh, oppress and and constrain uh, indigenous peoples uh, as well as uh, as well as um, you know other racialized folks and in, in particular black people uh, across Canada and across North America. So, um, yeah, that's that's really what I, what I'm doing with each and every businesses for harm reduction. We've got a network of about 200. Um, businesses across Canada, including 50 or 60 across Calgary. Um, a lot of them are right down near the supervised consumption site. And we're really trying to flip that script that, that businesses don't welcome these sorts of services into their neighborhoods. We want to uh, start pulling in the other direction and say, like, you know, these are public services. Um, if we don't want to see drug use in your front door, um, why not give people a safe space to use instead? Um, and that's really where that conversation started. So um, we've gone from there to kind of advocacy around safe supply, um, trying to look at different angles of crime prevention and, and stuff like that that we can get into. Okay. It's interesting you bring up the, the, the treaty piece. My understanding from the legislature last week was that Indigenous peoples have fully extricated themselves from the, the, the Patriarchal Indian Act. I'm saying that with all kinds of sarcasm because that's a thing that our premier actually said, which was horrifying. Um, and I'm, not, I'm never going to stop going back to that. Um, so each and every is an organization that the way that a lot of drug use or substance use has been talked about has been, oh, but the businesses, 
the, the businesses, they, they want the police to come in and just clear the streets, maybe use a snowplow. It, it sounds like each and every takes a bit of a different approach to it. Yeah, certainly. Um, I, I think we're looking at the evidence uh, first and foremost and saying, you know, what what is humane and what is evidence based? And, uh, you know, using the snowplow certainly isn't humane. And as it turns out, it's also not evidence based. You're just, you know, smearing people around the city, smearing humanity from one neighborhood to the next um, so that they you know, have to pick up all their stuff or have their stuff thrown in the trash can for them. Um, kind of restart over and over and over again. This is really just one more system of oppression that we we need to work to dismantle. But um, while we're moving towards that, I think businesses and and neighborhoods can do a much better job of, of you know welcoming people into their areas and and sharing space. You know, um, take the Beltline for example. People have been using drugs in Central Memorial Park for decades. Uh, this is not a new phenomenon there by any stretch. Things have gotten worse because the drug poisoning crisis and drug toxicity in general has gotten much worse. Um, homelessness, houselessness has gotten much worse. So um, we, you know, we, we have to look at these things within the context of, of the world we're living in right now. And, um, you know, to say that like the supervised consumption site in any given neighborhood is, is drawing people and problems into the neighborhood is, uh, is, is not looking at what the evidence says, which is, which is quite the opposite, that it solves problems in neighborhoods. I want to talk about that toxicity piece for a while because it seems to me that's one of the most poorly understood uh, elements of things. We did a, a walk along with an outreach group uh, about a year ago now, and one of the workers in that out- outreach group was also somebody who works in the, the supervised consumption site, and they were speaking uh, at length about the one of the big problems that first responders and healthcare workers are, and, and firefighters and all of that are navigating is it used to be you would get your opiate. It might have had a little bit mixed into it, but most of the time your opiate was your opiate, especially when people were using the, the pharmaceutical grade stuff. During the pandemic, it seems like uh, there was a lot of other ingredients that were introduced to the recipe. I mean, I was I was hearing stories, and certainly there's been stories in the media, of all kinds of different uh, chemicals mixed in. Whether we're talking about diabetes medications uh, to stimulants to other things to other things to other things, and a lot of people have said it's the toxicity that is is driving a lot of the the opiate deaths. And by that, what I mean is people are are purchasing. Uh, drugs or substances to use, they're not getting what they thought they're getting. And because there's no quality control because of the street drugs, uh, they're dying. What's your take on that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You know, in a good regulated drug market like alcohol, you should always know the strength and the composition of what you're taking. So if I walk into a bar and I order a beer, I know that it's a 5% alcohol pint. I'm not going to drop dead from taking a sip of that beer, um, hopefully, unless it's really, really terrible, maybe. But the um, like, you know, the general gist is that the people need to know what they're taking. And, and what you've pointed out here is, is this uh, variability in composition. So we've got depressants like benzodiazepines um, blended in with opiates, which is really dangerous um, because these sorts of poisonings often can't even be reversed by naloxone anymore. Um, you've, so, you know, you've got to have paramedics on set on the scene to, to address that problem effectively or, or get the person to the emergency room. Um, you know, you've got, uh, you've got variability, huge variability in the, the potency of the fentanyl that's now, um, you really invaded the space of, of the opiate supply. 
Uh, so it can, you know, be anywhere from 5% in a, in a, in a given sample to any, like nearly pure. And if somebody is used to really needing that 70% strength, um, fentanyl in, in their, in their shot or in their, um, in their dose, um, and, and it's at 95% this time, like that, that's, that's a pretty big difference and it could result in an overdose. So we're seeing just this really, um, volatile situation for people who are, are really just trying to manage their day, um, like anybody else, uh, who are, you know, taking, taking opiates, uh, or, or other types of drugs, um, to get by, to, to manage really tough circumstances. Uh, I think, you know, I can pro probably agree if, if either of us ended up houseless tomorrow, um, one of the first things we'd be reaching for is, is whatever can bring us some comfort and, uh, and help us get through the day. And I, I just, I can't get over this um, idea that, you know, blaming, blaming anybody for, for drug use, you know, not understanding their circumstances and not having, you know, walked in their shoes in, to some level. Um, but, uh, but, you know, that aside, I think, I think we just got to look at the situation as it lies and try and help people, um, survive that. And, and the best way through that is to, is to regulate the drug supply. One of the other pieces of the, the conversation that seems to fall through the cracks all too often is it, it seems like people want to apply some sort of formula, um, you, you have, you lose your job. It's like a country song. You lose your job, you lose your truck, you lose your dog. You're homeless uh, or houseless. You lose your job. You pick up a drug habit because that's what people do. It's just, you know, hey, I think I'd, it's Tuesday. Um, and then you end up houseless. And the, it seems like a lot of the time, a lot of the modalities are built on sort of that X plus Y equals Z, but that's not necessarily how a lot of people experience houselessness and, and the, the drug addiction part. How many initiatives are you aware of that are designed to meet the houseless population where they are? And I'm going to extrapolate that to some other groups in just a sec. Yeah, I've recently heard somebody say there were 35 outreach groups in Calgary active now. I know there's a whole bunch up in Edmonton as well. Um, and so these, these are generally groups that are, you know, at least have a, a harm reduction philosophy, hopefully, uh, because a lot of what they're doing out in, in the streets with people is is exactly that, meeting people where they're at, um, providing them with supplies. But really, that's just the, the mechanics of it. Um, approaching people with a harm reduction philosophy really is, is about acceptance, radical acceptance, and um, ensuring that you're not approaching them with judgment, that um, you're ready to accept the scene as it is and, and try and you know, help them navigate what it, whatever it is that, uh, that they're encountering in their day, even you know, if, that, if that means... Um, helping to support them, you know, through, uh, um, you know, police harassment or something like that, or, or if you, you know, stagger onto a, an overdose scene and, and being ready to, um, to reverse that situation. So I, I think, um, there are a lot of different groups. They, they all approach it with slightly from slightly different angles, but, um, you know, from by all accounts, people are doing great work out there, just, um, managing a, a pretty dire scene where that's not really being, addressed or met properly with, with evidence-based policy by the provincial government. And, uh, and, and I think it's uh, what we're seeing is, a, is an emergency response that's been going on for pretty close to a decade now. Okay. Um, I'm just curious. You say there's 35 groups that uh, uh, are, are, are participating actively in meeting people where they are. They're participating actively in, in sort of the harm reduction approach. 
How many of those groups are involved in this new task force that the UCP has implemented? Zero, exactly zero. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we've got, uh, I mean, within that task force, I, I can't name everybody on it, but it, it was, uh, you know, a couple of handpicked city councillors who, um, you know, in my opinion, are not the best choices for this particular task force. Um, I think you've you've got to have people that are really uh, vocal about drug policy and that, that understand that if this is a task force that's designed to address drug policy and, and you know, I keep calling it a, an involuntary or a forced addiction treatment task force. They call it a public safety task force, but uh, to me, it's really just a backdoor to involuntary treatment. Um, you've got to have you've got to have those people that that understand um, where the drug poisoning crisis is coming from. I, I'm not really seeing a lot of evidence of that uh, within the folks that have been kind of chosen for this task force. Um, but it, you know that actually fits part and parcel with. Pretty much everything that's been done um, in drug policy by the provincial government since they took power in 2019, we're, you know, we're, we're we uh, we removed ourselves from the Safe Supply Committee last year. Um, we were supposed to present on it, um, and just after seeing the speakers list, it, it was just a a kind of a who's who of drug war propagandists from from the states and from across Canada, and um, that's not the discussion we wanted to have. You know, we're not starting from a perspective that. Um, that the drug war can only be fought with more addiction treatment and more policing and more border control. Like we, we have to move past that. That's like talking about, that's like trying to start from climate change denialism 15 years ago. You know, it's like we were having those conversations back then. That's kind of where we're at right now in the drug poisoning world. Like there are just a large number of people in very, very high positions of power. Um, in the academic sphere, uh, in policing, in, in politics, that uh, that just refuse to accept that the main driver of the drug poisoning crisis is drug toxicity. And the best way to address that will be to regulate the drug supply. I mean, looking at the makeup of the, the, the task force, there's multiple UCP, <clears throat> excuse me, there's multiple UCP ministers. Uh, so there's Nicholas Milliken, Jeremy Nixon, Mike Ellis, Rebecca Schultz. There's a representation or a representative from Six Sigiga. Uh, there's a representative from Sutina. There's two, the two Calgary city councillors that you mentioned, Sonia Sharp, Andrea Chabot. And then there's a bunch of city of Calgary folks, some AHS folks. And there's, it appears that there's only one um, homeless group that uh, is represented on this task force, and that would be the Calgary Homeless Foundation. Um, would you have liked to see more people who are 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 doing the sort of the the direct outreach? Yeah, I think that would have been really helpful. I think even more helpful would have been to have uh, people who use drugs uh, and and houseless people on that committee. You know, uh, let's let's get lived experience in there and living experience. You know, somebody that you know went through addiction treatment fifteen years ago probably doesn't, you know, it hasn't and hasn't lived through the the crisis as it stands right now, um, or been criminalized under under the new, you know, the new way that we approach drug poisoning and, and drugs in general, um, is probably not really going to understand that well, what's going on right now. And I think that we need to, we need to get to a point where these committees are made up of people that, um, that have lived through that. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think, I can't speak for, for the, you know, for the indigenous communities that are represented there. I think that's always going to be important and we need to make sure that we have people represented in these committees that are going to hold 
the committee's feet to the fire to make sure that, you know, that, um, that TRC, um, MMIW guide, um, calls for action, calls to action are, are being implemented and, and that the whole thing is really being seen through that lens as well. Um, but, you know, short of that, I think, I think I'm, I'm just not seeing a lot of expertise in drug policy and, and in, in houseless policy and housing. I'm seeing a lot of denial that, that, that housing is, you know, is, the main solution for houselessness as well. It's like we keep conflating these, uh, this, um, we keep conflating addiction with, with houselessness and public safety. So, you know, there's a lot of fear built up around uh, houseless people. Um, that's, that's misplaced in almost every case. Um, you've got a situation where it's the, the message that seems to be delivered is that people are houseless because of drugs, because they became addicted and then they slipped into houselessness. That is also almost never the case. Um, in fact, that's not even a top five reason for houselessness. Um, the reasons for houselessness are primarily that uh, people can't afford housing. And that's, you know, with 50% of Canadians, what one paycheck away from not being able to meet their rent or mortgage. Uh, I think we can all understand what that looks like. And, um, you know, people running away from bad situations. Um, there's a lot of folks that end up houseless because they can't be at home. And, and so, you know, if we want to address houselessness, we got to address those things and, and stop talking about addiction as being a main driver of houselessness. That anybody that says that just should immediately not be taken seriously in this context. Um, because it's, uh, it's, it's corrosive. Um, it's harmful to people who are just trying to survive out there. Um, and it misrepresents the data egregiously. I mean, when you're talking about the, the, the fear of houseless people, and I think that, it, you know, the two things that immediately come to mind for me are when you hear police officers talking about the most dangerous situations that they're going to go into, the one that always comes up is domestic uh, violence situations. You don't hear police officers saying, I'm really scared of the, the houseless guy. That's, that's not a, a, a conversation that I think uh, has ever been presented in the media or, or, or anything that I've been heard. But there is very much this, this it seems like a, a false assumption about, you know, if they're, if they're houseless, they're somehow more dangerous. Um, and given that what you said about the, it's not even one of the, top, the, the drug use pieces and one of the, the top five reasons for the houselessness, that is a whole bunch of flawed uh, assumptions being made there. What do you think it's going to take to to get the the people? I mean, looking at the two city councillors for Calgary, I don't know very much about the Edmonton situation, but looking for the two city councillors for Calgary, it's almost as if the provincial government said, who are the conservative, hard right-leaning councillors? Well, we can't use those two. What's left? Okay, we've got these two. Yeah, um, I think it's it's really just a, a manufacturing of consent. Like th this, to me, is uh, among other things a power grab by the province. Um, Councillor Walcott actually just put out a really interesting uh, blog post that everybody should probably read. Um, it's on his website, and and he talks about a lot of different things in this blog post. But one of them is just really how um, the you know Bill Six addressing the Police Act um, is is kind of a power grab by the province to um, to get to a point where they can appoint uh, commission members, for example, police commission members. Um, and 
And and just put into, you know, a sort of ignore federal laws. So, uh, you know, something that Duncan Kinney just brought, brought up was was interesting one. He, he mentioned just talked about supervised consumption sites being being federally regulated. Uh, so if we don't like supervised consumption sites, despite the fact that they've got a Section 56 exemption to operate under the federal government, uh, we're going to ignore that. And, and this is, you know, we can see where the problems uh, are going to show up here pretty quickly. So, um, you know, and this is all linked to uh, to resistance of, of alternatives to policing, um, which is really sad because when you think about these, these outreach groups are, that are out there doing this work, you know, face-to-face -face with people on the streets, they rarely, if ever, run into problems. Like they, they have de-escalation training. Uh, they carry cigarettes and, and hand them out to people and just find ways to, to, to meet them where they're at and to uh, to um, kind of encounter them on a human level that you'll just never get from a uniform. Um, and so I, I think uh, we're really missing an opportunity to, to learn from these groups and, and apply what they've been teaching us for years about, uh, you know, about non-police peaceful alternatives to, to addressing communities that, you know, that are struggling. Um, so, yeah, I, I think uh, it, to me, I just, I just look around, and I see a, a huge number of missed opportunities. Um, and these would be opportunities for, for everybody to, to reduce costs, um, if that's what really floats your boat, but also to just create safer spaces for everyone. They talk about meeting people where they're at. And a little bit of a personal anecdote here, when we did our uh, walk along with one of the, the harm reduction outreach groups. It was absolutely stunning for me to watch the, not just the level of trust that these harm reduction, this harm reduction group had been able to build with, uh, the, the houseless folks that they were dealing with, but the enthusiasm with which the, the houseless people were addressing the, the outreach group. There were people from like a block away being like, Oh, and then running up and some of them absolutely wanted to get some supplies but a lot of them are just like i wanted to come say hi i love you guys so much um it really was a, a, a deeply moving powerful beautiful experience for us um and so much of that came because they were they were willing to put the work into meeting people where they're at. We saw an interview with um, somebody who's the one of the panel members uh, on CBC recently, where that didn't seem to even be part of the equation because one of the questions that the CBC guy asked was, so, you know, how are we going to make sure we have enough spaces for people? And she was like, oh, we've got enough spaces as it is. But... There didn't seem to be in that conversation any awareness of the barriers for people accessing those, those spaces. Uh, and we saw this with COVID where a lot of people were like, I don't feel safe there. And it wasn't just because of COVID. It was because of threats of violence. It was because uh, threats of abuse. It was because there are some shelters that don't accept people who are in certain types of relationships. There's some, some shelters that don't accept people with pets. And the idea for... Um, a houseless person to abandon their companion animal when it's minus 40 is, is as impossible a choice as, as staying out there themselves. So have you, do you have any hope that this, this panel is going to do any of those meeting where pe meeting people where they're at? No, it sounds like they're doing the exact opposite to me. Um, you know, that the announcements made both in Edmonton and Calgary 
would effectively not talk about harm reduction at all. They wouldn't even say the word harm reduction. It was services that reduce harm is kind of the new catchphrase we're hearing out of the government. Um, but but that aside, um, we're we're trying to apply a one size fits all solution to pretty much everything that that touches drug policy in Alberta right now. You know, if you can't survive uh, long enough to get to addiction treatment, and if you can't survive addiction treatment itself, and then get out on the other side and remain alive with your kind of your new uh, new status, you know, maybe you hope you know if you're abstinent coming out of that. Um, then there's really not a lot for you. You you get you get that or you get nothing effectively. Um, if you know we've maintained a few supervised consumption sites across the province, we've closed a number of them as well. Um, the places where they've closed, people have been forced to scatter elsewhere, and uh, you know to to just make do. In a lot of cases, a lot of people have died as a result. And uh, you know we we know that these sorts of places help people stay alive. Um, it's, it's not in a lot of cases under ideal circumstances, they're still struggling with, with houselessness. In some cases, they're still, uh, encountering toxic drugs. Um, but yeah, this, uh, you know, this one size fits all approach that if you, if you can't achieve abstinence, then too bad for you, um, is really being, uh, downloaded now into the cities where, uh, through this task force is the way I see it. It's, it's effectively just a, a backdoor, for the province to force more people into addiction treatment. Um, they've hinted at that at both of these announcements. Uh, Nicholas Milliken, the Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, um, you know, he, he's very much musing in public now, uh, kind of mask off about uh, involuntary treatment for, for unhoused individuals in particular. So, uh, you know, this to me, like I'm looking at this from a business standpoint, like I just see this as widening the sales funnel for the addiction treatment industry. They're just looking for more people to load in at the top of the funnel and, and move through their sales process. Um, it's, uh, it's obvious and, and I, I, it's unfortunate that, you know, some people in city council and, and positions of power within even some folks in the nonprofit, you know, community are, are really just buying this hook, line and sinker that, you know, if we solve addiction, we can solve houselessness uh, or that will, it will even have a bearing on houselessness, which it will not. So I think we, we just have to move past that point um, and and help people, uh, you know, with safe, regulated supply of drugs, um, you know, and, and we can get into like how that could impact property crime and things like that. You know, if we want to talk about just meeting people's basic needs, food, shelter, you know, pharmaceutical versions of the drugs they're using anyway. Um, like we don't really need a lot of policing after that, you know, because in fact, we don't need a lot of policing now chasing people around town, um, confiscating their drugs, trashing their tents, all this other stuff. So, but that's, you know, kind of a separate conversation. <laughs> but this one worth, worth sort of exploring. I, I do want to hit on what you talked about the, the the forced treatment side because it seems like the the forced treatment assumption is that if we put these people into you know all these little boxes and we force them to accept the 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 type of treatment that we deem right for them there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of awareness that's that some of those boxes that you're putting people into are in fact coffins because the efficacy of forced treatment is to my understanding, not great. What's your understanding? 
No, it's, it's count. It's uh, yeah, it runs counter. It, you know, people die as a result of forced treatment. You know, if, if you're not going into addiction treatment voluntarily, then you are being put at significant risk by the system that's putting you there. Um, yeah, the studies are, are clear on this and you know, I'm all for voluntary treatment. If, if that's something that works for people, if that's a choice that they're able to make and that's a position they're in to, you know, to, and, and hopefully come out um, with housing, if they were lacking that before and with some of their other basic needs met, like the, yeah, the, the success rate is, is going to be much higher <laughs> and, um, and the traumatization is going to be much lower. Like there's a lot, I know a lot of people that have been forced into abstinence-based treatment that spent you know, are now, even now spending a lot of their time, uh, trying to untangle the trauma that, that was caused by that experience. So, um, you know, we know that a lot of drug use, you know, problematic, if you want to put it that way, drug use is, is linked to trauma. So we need to do our best to avoid traumatizing people, uh, especially people that are already, uh, using a lot of substances. So, um, Again, missed opportunity. It, it's uh, it's just trying to load people into these boxes, as you say, into coffins in some cases, and um, missing the opportunity that is right in front of us to do the right thing for people, to help them, and then downstream to help all of society by reducing the costs of these sorts of services and programs. Um, right now, we're just ramping it all up. I'm glad you brought the trauma piece up because it really does seem to me like if you've got somebody who is, I'm going to say self-medicating, um, with pick your, your chemical of choice, uh, because of trauma, because they were, they, they experienced a situation where, where something was forced on them or they were forced to do something that they didn't want to do to try to say, you know what, part of your healing process is doing that all over again, seems in, incredibly disingenuous to me. Um, so that's wild. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think, uh, I, I think there's more to it. There's more going on behind it, which, you know, we can get into the sort of more hypothetical or speculative side of this, but, you know, I think we've got people operating in the government right now who, uh, are very closely linked to the addiction treatment industry, uh, uncomfortably close. And, um, you know, the chief of staff for, for Danielle Smith, for example, that, um, I, I think, are, are, their agendas are not entirely clear to the public. And it's been, you know, clear to many of us uh, standing kind of, you know, with, with feet in the drug policy world, looking at like, okay, they wouldn't do that unless they really, really wanted to force people into addiction treatment and, you know, integrating policing into healthcare in this way that they're doing right now and into social services. Um, that is uh, like, that is putting your foot on the gas of, of forcing people into treatment. So it's really alarming. I, I think, um, you know, uh, you, you could kind of use the, like the, the equivalent, like if we were able to create enough fear around alcohol, you know, then you're sitting there drinking that same pint of, of regulated beer. Somebody comes in and says, this is problematic drug use. We need to haul you off to treatment for this. Like how many people are going to accept that, you know? Um, how many people would accept being prescribed, you know, three light beers a day by their doctor even, you know? So when we talk about like the prescribed medical version of all this too, there's a lot of problems within that too, um, of, of kind of gatekeeping by, by the medical community. So, uh, they don't want to be in that position either. I, I think that, um, I think that we really do need to get away from, from all of a lot of these structures. I think we need to maintain very strict, um, 
like regulatory procedures for, uh, you know, around this. I think we've, a lot of people would, would agree that like we've gone too far. We went too far with tobacco. We probably went too far with alcohol. We've gone too far um, with, with drugs that now cause more harm than they, than they need to in society. Um, but uh, we're, we're not even dipping our toe in that side of things with, um, with opioids and, uh, uh, you know, methamphetamine, cocaine, that sort of thing right now. So, and, and that's why people are dying. Why do you think that there is, I mean, we certainly see it in the, the members of the government. We certainly see it in members of the public. Why do you think there is such a, a resistance and a fear to have the conversation around this incredibly complex issue that starts with, this is an incredibly complex issue, and anybody who's trying to sell you that there's a single approach that's going to work doesn't know what they're talking about. This is, this is going to require many different angles of, of attack from many different uh, places. Why, why is it that that's not the conversation that we're having? Why is it instead that we're getting, oh, we're throwing $58 million at the problem and it'll be fine? Yeah, um, because that money is probably already spoken for by by the vested interests that that exist that are kind of operating within our government right now. That that would be my answer to that. Um, I think that you know there is a ton of money being thrown at the problem. Unfortunately, the the problem has not been accurately defined. So you know the problem is apparently that you know people fall into houselessness because they're addicted, for example. So if we solve the addiction, then we can solve the houselessness. That's bullshit. We know that's bullshit. And we have to stop accepting that. And we can't be hearing that from, you know, from the CEO of the Calgary Homeless Foundation. We can't be hearing that from city councillors. These people need to be leading us to a point where we come to a consensus as a society that houselessness is caused by people not being able to afford homes, not being able to afford the rent um, primarily. And until we can pivot our attention to addressing that and really restructuring our economy in, in various ways in order to to meet those needs for people um I, I don't think i don't think we're gonna get anywhere near a real solution other than you know just locking people up traumatizing them eventually releasing them back out into the street where they're going to be more traumatized than they were when they went in so um you know this to me this forced addiction treatment stuff is is really just incarceration by another name and uh it sounds compassionate but, you know, compassion without consent is just paternalism and, and it's going to be really damaging for a lot of people. Um, again, nothing against voluntary treatment. Uh, I think anybody that, that wants to access those sorts of services should be able to on their own terms um, with their needs met as they stand. So if they want to hold on to their, you know, their methadone prescription or if they want to keep using drugs of various sorts, but just reduce their, their intake or whatever it is, like they, they just need, those needs have to be met or else they're setting themselves up, the system setting them up for failure. Well, we saw just recently there was the program that the provincial government was running where people were able to get prescribed, uh, people who had severe uh, opioid withdrawal were able to get prescribed amounts of opioids. And they were, I, I read a story about a, a young woman who um, had turned her entire life around and was a an entirely functioning member of society in many positive ways while still using uh opioids to keep her from experiencing all of the the very very bad things so this you're gonna have to get ophelia on the show actually nate um she's she's wonderful and and she's you know anecdote is not evidence but but her the story she can tell you 
uh, I think is, is representative and characteristic of a lot of people out there who have been trying to scream at us for decades now that like they, they can't really get by without using these drugs. It's, it's inherent to who they are to be able to use these drugs and they're not themselves without them. So wh why don't we just listen to them? Like I, we're, we're so, uh, we're so caught up with this fear that's been built over generations now around drugs. Uh, and this is manufactured fear. It's been, you know, it's been 115 years of it and we were born into it. We never consented to drug prohibition. We were born into that. All of us were. Um, and, you know, until we can unlearn that sort of thing, it's kind of like, you know, decolonizing ourselves. Uh, we, we have to unlearn uh, those teachings from, from the D.A.R.E. program, you know, from, from the visits to the police station when we were going through scouts, you know, or, or, or brownies or whatever, like, these uh these are um these are just propaganda tactics to to bury that emotional response deep in our brains to to drugs um and i think instead you know our society right now has again this huge opportunity to listen to people like ophelia who can tell us um a totally different side of of their experience and their life while using drugs yeah it's 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 not the the binary state that that a lot of people view it as, um, and I think I'll I'll even own for me when when they were talking about the the legalization of marijuana, I was I was I was nervous. I was uh, I was wondering, oh oh, what are we going to see here? And it turns out more than anything, what we saw was. Uh, a bunch of people who didn't read the instructions on the label and gave themselves anxiety attacks. But be, above and beyond that, the the massive uh, crush of the 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 oh, or sorry the marijuana overdoses didn't happen. Um, so, and and people use now marijuana regularly, and they're still able to function and go about their day. So it's not as uh, yeah, it's just not as as binary as as some people like to present it as. Um, what are the strategies that you'd like to see being implemented going forward? I mean, looking at this, this panel here, uh, I, I, I don't see creme brulee listed. It may come along later. But uh, I don't see, with the exception of, um, I'll say, the, the two Indigenous representatives, because I don't know very much about them at all, but a lot of the other names are very familiar names. These are not people who, who appear to have any kind of real lived experience with any of this stuff. So I find myself wondering, you know, what kind of insight can they actually bring above and beyond implementation? Um, so we're disregarding this panel entirely. What would you what would you like to see as solutions for for addressing the multifaceted issues that we're talking about, whether it's houselessness or drug addiction or mental health uh, and the overlap, like the Venn diagram of all of those things. What do you want? What are the, what are the, the types of things that you'd like to see implemented? Well, I'm going to add public safety to that list as well um, within that Venn diagram. And there is a significant place of overlap within that Venn diagram um, in safe regulated drug supply you know, to increase public safety, to minimize the negative impacts of drug use uh, for, for many individuals, to uh, to remove the need for policing in a lot of corners of our society, and, um, you know, and for helping people get stable, if that's what they're looking for um, in housing, you know. Um, 
I was at I was at a police town hall recently for businesses uh, where it was hosted by a couple of city councillors, um, Evan, Evan Spencer and Sonia Sharp, who's actually on this task force. Um, and the police told us something really interesting. They said that 90 percent of property crime in this city is committed by about 100 active individuals. And most of these folks are committing property crime in order to sustain drug habits. So they're, you know, they're heavy drug users. Um, they. Uh, they need the resources to be able to sustain those those habits. So, you know, I put my hand up at the end and I asked, wouldn't it make a wonderful crime prevention strategy to just give them the drugs instead of chasing them around, spending all this money on insurance, you know, big, thick glass at your storefront, um, CCTV cram cameras everywhere, uh, you know, jail costs, like the courtroom costs, all this stuff. Um, and just hand them the prescribed version or the regulated version of, of what they're trying to get anyway, so that they can get on with their day and, and do whatever else it is that they need to do in order to get by. Um, it's just one cornerstone of, of, of all the things they need to do, you know, to, to feed themselves, to clothe themselves, to house themselves. But um, it would make a pretty big difference for a lot of people. And we already know that it reduces crime because we can see it in data in other places. You know, look at uh, the London Intercommunity Health Center's safe opioid supply program. Um, look at, you know, what's going on in Victoria and Vancouver. There are people that are achieving what we would actually describe as recovery. It, it looks like recovery in every sense of the word. Um, they are stable. They are happy. They are reconnecting with family. They are reducing things like, uh, you know, survival sex work. They are reducing their contact with police. They all, all you know, and they're reducing property crime. Um, so this is a huge opportunity. And so what I'm seeing from the business community is is a really positive response um, that we've got this opportunity to do this um, to uh, to make a big difference in the way that businesses can operate and communities can operate. Um, without really needing to throw a lot more, you know, police resources and that sort of thing at it in, in the old way that we always do things. So um, that, that would be step one for me is start to uh, roll out the opportunities for people to open up, um, you know, little compassion clubs um, that, that are not medicalized, that are not run by doctors, that are uh, set up by the community for the community uh, of people who use drugs. Um, you know, if we could get that far <laughs> under this government, that would be an absolute home run. Um, but what I see happening is a rushed task force to get as quickly as possible from where we are right now to um, justified forced addiction treatment and um, loading as many more people as possible into that system. Um, I, I think that's terrifying. And I think Albertans should be up in arms about it. But, you know, we, we just people are out of energy fighting this government at this point. It feels like um, that just the fire hose of bullshit that people have had to uh, deal with over the last few years is uh, has people taxed and, and exhausted. And I think if anybody that, you know, has some spare energy going into the new year uh, should should be focused on on this issue and really fighting it, fighting you know, fighting the uh, the idea of forced treatment, fighting the idea of pulling people off their prescriptions, which is also happening under their narcotics transition services program. Um, it's really just a way to uh, to coerce and control people and get them into addiction treatment again. Um, it's kind of happening from the other side of people who are already on prescriptions or already accessing um, opioids and different versions. 
And, um, you know, like we, we, so we're doing a lot of organizing in the community. We recently put out a, uh, an open letter co-signed by the Beltline Neighborhoods Association, Beltline Business Association, uh, Crescent Heights Neighborhood uh, Community Association, and each and every that basically called for um, a distributed model of supervised consumption sites across Calgary, you know, smaller sites that, that, that um, um, accommodate communities everywhere in, in the city, everywhere where we're seeing overdose hotspots, which is pretty much every neighborhood, um, yeah, especially around train stations. Again, huge missed opportunity. If we don't want people using drugs in public in train stations, give them an opportunity to use in private in an, op- in an overdose prevention site. Um, then, uh, you know, more drug checking, which uh, AWARE is already bringing on uh, in the new year. So there is going to be the first, um, you know, drug checking pilot. So people can actually bring their drugs to a site, to a mobile site and, and have their drugs tested uh, there. So they know what, what they're taking. Um, so AWARE, which is the, the local organization representing people who use drugs in Alberta. Um, and, uh, you know, like activate every available resource for housing. I know there are a lot of people working on that and, and I don't know all of the, all of the initiatives at play there, but I'm sure there's a lot more money that's not being tapped into. And what I'm seeing here with the province is basically just saying like, okay, if we're going to tap into housing money, it's going to be on our conditions, which, you know, has, has to be kind of addiction treatment first, not housing first, uh, which I think is again, deeply problematic. I'm curious what their answer was when you when you posed that question to the, the 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 panel that you were speaking of, and you said, "Hey, why don't you know?" I think if people actually looked up the cost of medical opioids, uh, they would fall out of their chair for how cheap they are. They are unbelievably inexpensive. Um, what what was the response when you asked that question? Yeah, I mean, even if we were paying street prices, we could still get by on, you know, a fraction of the daily police budget to to accommodate all of the folks that are engaged in property crime in this city easily. Um, it would be a fraction of a percent of, of the police budget to do this. And then we wouldn't really, you know, in a lot of cases, people would get away from property crime. I think that when when people hear that, they're kind of like, well, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Like, thank you for bringing that up, because... Um, all I'm hearing right now from, you know, from business association leaders and from, from the government uh, and from certain members of city council is that the only way to, to deal with this problem is more of the same of what we're already doing, which doesn't sound intuitive to me, you know, so let's ramp up more policing. Let's, you know, when I was at that town hall, a lot of the folks that were there were really there to air their grievances about not having quick and easy enough access to police. Um, so they would raise their hand and kind of, you know, whine about like legitimate concerns that, yeah, they're dealing with property crime, their glass was smashed, all these, all these problems are that they're having to, you know, foot the bill for at the end of the day, which sucks, but nobody's providing them with a solution that's actually going to work. It's just more of like, call the police next time, make sure, you know, let's get more cops onto the corners. Let's like have a presence is what they'll call it. And, and then now the, the language is shifting to this, uh, you know, compassionate intervention, um, which, which is not compassionate at all or evidence-based, um, to, you know, to force people into addiction treatment. So um, yeah, I, I think, uh, I think we're a long way from, from a solution right now, um, at least in our public discourse, but uh, there are a lot of beacons of hope that I'm seeing. And, and a lot of those sit in the, in the outreach community. I wish we had better ways to, to scale up 
um, those folks because they are uh, they're doing great work on shoestring budgets, mostly privately funded by donations uh, or volunteer efforts, and uh, and they've got an awful lot more to offer. Yeah, I couldn't agree with more, you more on that one. I just keep going back. There's there's two things that have been going through my head the this entire conversation. Um, one of them is there's a there's a joke. Uh, how many? And I think we can. I'm gonna I'm gonna juxtapose it a little bit. How many How many drug treatment people does it take to change the light bulb? Well, only one, but the light bulb's got to want to change. Uh, and I think that there's. I mean, obviously that's that's a gross oversimplification. But the principle is, if you want somebody to accept help, they have to be in a place where they can accept that help. And if they're not in a place where you're accepting that help, then you're just further traumatizing them. Um, And the other one is that, you know, with the repetition of the same strategies over and over and over again, there's a, there was a comedian named Bill Hicks and he said, you know what the problem is with the war on drugs Uh, and, and the claim that we're losing the war on drugs, it implies that there's a war going on and people on drugs are winning it. Maybe it's time to change up the strategies. Is all I'm saying. Um, Ewan, is there anything that you'd el- anything else you'd like people to know? Anything else you'd like people to hear? Yeah, I, I guess I'd just emphasize that um, city council, city councils, I'll, I'll say across this province have have a huge opportunity right now to to do something uh, through the police commissions and through their own voting. Uh, I, you know, I think Edmonton's moving forward with decriminalization package. Uh, that is. That is going to be in front of the federal government before we know it. Um, so, you know, where's Calgary's? Where is Calgary's decriminalization package? We, we can't go keep going on with this de facto decriminalization stuff because all we're saying is that we're leaving it up to individual police to decide who gets punished. Uh, again, that's not right. We know how that turns out. We, all of the race-based data in the world has told us that that's, uh, that's not an ideal situation for most racialized people. Um, so, so let's not allow this de facto decriminalization catchphrase to, uh, to, to be our permanent reality in Alberta. Um, we need real decriminalization. Um, we need, uh, I think we need a mechanism for, for organizations or individuals or small groups of people to set up buyers clubs of safe drugs. There are safe drugs out there available through, um, you know, through pharmaceuticals, but, but also just like through other channels, through illegal channels. And I think we just got to get past the point that, that these are illegal channels and, and open up ways to, uh, to allow people to access them. Because even with, you know, a good drug, drug checking system, um, you can pretty much regulate your own supply. So the conversation needs to shift towards regulating the supply. If if anything that falls short of that is not going to address the drug toxicity. Um, So, so that's critical. Um, and there are ways to do that again through the police commission. Uh, police can be kind of ordered to stand down on on drug charges. Uh, we can set up exemptions across the city through through decriminalization, um, setting the the thresholds for uh, for what you can carry high enough so that buyers clubs can actually exist. I think that would be really valuable. Um, and uh, you know, I, I think that the average citizen can can be pushing their their city councillors, um, their provincial representative, maybe, um, but but really their city councillors to uh, to start looking at these sorts of things. Um, I think uh, you know if any businesses are listening, you should you should check out each and every each and every dot org. You can sign up for free there. 
Um, if, uh, if you got a bit of spare money in your pocket, you should donate it to one of the outreach groups around. Um, there's lots of people operating, uh, all with kind of different angles and different memberships and that sort of thing. So figure out which one uh, really appeals to you. And uh, I, I would recommend that if there are any artists out there, we are running an art auction through each and every, again, you can find that at our website, eachandevery.org. Uh, all the money is going to outreach groups um, and, and initiatives that will effectively advance overdose prevention and safer supply, safe supply in Alberta. Um, yeah, those are, those are really the key things, I'd say. And I think it's, it's worth highlighting when we're talking about decriminalization. Um, my understanding, please correct me if I'm wrong, is that uh, we're not talking about decriminalizing the guy who's flying in a plane load. We're, we're talking about people who are carrying personal use quantities um, and maybe they shouldn't go to jail for that. Yeah, and, and most people who are selling drugs are also people who are using drugs down at the street level. You know, when we talk about the drug dealer, this image that we've got in our head of kind of this drug kingpin, there aren't that many of those people. Um, and you know, those people are effectively meeting uh, an economic demand in any case, yeah, through through really ugly means in a lot of cases, but those ugly means are, are a consequence of drug prohibition, not the way they want to operate, you know, uh, craft breweries are not shooting each other up in the streets over, you know, beer turf, right, and that's a consequence of a regulated market. So let's start thinking about all these things from a sensible standpoint and stop listening to the drug warriors out there that want to continue this, this war, which really is about maintaining class structure and maintaining racial structure in our society. Uh, people can learn about that through, through just understanding the history of drug prohibition. I think that that's a really valuable place to start here. Uh, the Canadian Drug Policy Coalition has, a really good, has really good resources around that. Uh, and so does Drug Policy Org, the... Um, uh, the American counterpart to the Canadian Drug Policy Coalition. So, um, yeah, I, I think um, just coming back to your point, I think we've we've got um, we've got a lot we've got a lot of work work to do, and I think people um, can start with kind of the education piece and really understanding like where all this comes from, who's driving it, um, and and start to uh, put some pressure on your on your local elected representatives. Yeah. To me, I just keep going back to the idea, the fact that I remember before, and this is totally anecdotal, but I remember before marijuana was uh, legalized, it, you would see multiple stories every week about houses that had been destroyed because they were grow ops and, and all of the, the concerns the community had about the, the houses that were being gutted as grow ops. And I honestly cannot remember the last time I heard about a major marijuana grow op operation uh, in a residential area in the city of Calgary. So I guess legalization can solve problems too. Interestingly, when you look at the police uh, records for drug busts, um, as cannabis has fallen off a cliff, all of the other drugs um, have, have increased in, in intensity by, you know, in terms of police enforcement. Uh, so like fentanyl and cocaine and methamphetamine busts have gone, kind of come in and taken the position that cannabis used to occupy. Uh, and it's pretty much just like maintained a steady trajectory of, um, you know, a steady kind of quota of, of drug busts, despite the fact that cannabis fell off. And I think that that is partly behind why we're seeing such, uh, you know, worse potency, uh, increasing potency and increasing um, volatility in the drug supply. We, we know from a lot of from a lot of data around the world that that every time a police bust happens, um, the drug supply becomes more toxic downstream because people are backfilling it with more contaminants. So, 
Yeah, uh, I think, yeah, it's a really interesting, you know, that's a really interesting uh, topic to get into in another day. Cool. Uh, Ewan, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. I hope that I, for what it's worth, I hope we're wrong. I, I hope that, that maybe this, this task force decides to not order the creme brulee and maybe they do decide that uh, a multifaceted approach that takes into consideration all of the factors is the way to go. I don't think we will be, but I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, thank you so much, Ben. Yeah, thank you. As always, if you appreciate the kind of content that we're trying to produce here at The Breakdown, we would love it if you swung by our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash thebreakdownab and signed up for a small monthly sponsorship of the work that we're trying to do here. It is because of the support that we receive from our Patreon sponsors that we're able to continually up our game, and it is tremendously appreciated. So I want to throw a big thank you out to them. And you can go ahead and visit that website and join and support us as well because we need all the help we can get. Thank you so much for your attention. Thank you so much for listening and being a part of these important conversations. And we will see you next time on The Breakdown.